Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes, and I'm joined by Terry Fakes for a book that's been very influential for both of us. It is a book that was written 25 years ago, but it has become very popular in Christian circles, Christian leadership circles. It is Edwin Friedman's Failure of Nerve. And so today we're going to be talking about leadership, a very favorite Christian topic, and especially a certain kind of leadership that I think poses a lot of really interesting qualities for uh, the way we live and lead as Christians. And uh, we'll talk about maybe some ways that it doesn't match up with that. But it's it's a very thought-provoking book and one that we've both learned a lot from. Exactly. It's interesting how influential this has become on, in sermons, and there have been several books written by Christians trying to adapt this. Friedman was a rabbi and a psychologist. And so the book has a lot of psychology in it, and it uh, does apply to religious groups. He was consulting with Christian groups as well as Jewish groups. But the really interesting thing to me is what he has to say about leadership. And he doesn't over-psychologize it, but he thinks that his fundamental thesis is that leadership is an emotional process. It's not just a cognitive process. And as you know from reading leadership books, you, you get a lot of leadership books that want to focus on systems and processes and metrics. And Friedman's going to come at this from a different point of view. And I think that's what's so useful to us is that he says it's fundamentally an emotional process. Yes, that tenet has so much potential to change the way you relate to other people. And organizationally, that's true. In the church, that's true. We're going to tease this out in a lot of different areas. Friedman starts with a little bit of a narrative about America. He talks about the myth of progress, that that society is built on this foundation of progress, up and to the right, economic progress, social progress, every decade better than the last. That is part of the American dream. And he says those things might be true in certain areas, militarily, economically, Mm -hmm. politically. But he makes the observation that America actually is regressive. It is regressing in terms of emotion and relationship. And this was striking to me going back through this book because, you know, he wrote this book in 1999. And man, if he could see us today, he would double down on this point because we have really cranked up the regression emotionally and relationally. And I I say that maybe half tongue in cheek, um, not to make light of the subject, but just to say he would be astounded as as to how right he was 25 years ago about this phenomenon. Of course, nobody could predict COVID, but what COVID did was reveal that the scaffolding was very weak that was holding up our collective emotional life. And um, so you're seeing skyrocketing rates of anxiety, depression. Um, You're seeing, obviously, a lot of trouble with identity in our country and in Western society writ large. So Friedman is really correct about this. He says, we may be progressing outwardly, but inwardly, are we really more emotionally mature than people were 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 300 years ago? And he's going to talk to us about uh, what he calls an anxious society, signs of an anxious society. Anxiety is kind Mm -hmm. of the term that he's going to use to talk about the perils emotionally that plague a society in a person. And so he has these five aspects. I'll hit the first couple and let you round out the list, but these are going to sound very familiar to people. 
Um, if, right. you, if you're alive right now and you're paying attention, these are going to sound very familiar. The first one is reactivity. Basically, what you do is always in reaction to what somebody else is doing. So you have escalatory scuffles between people because now you can't suffer being wronged. You've got to go back and pay somebody back for what they've done. You are seeing something, and so you define yourself in opposition to that thing. Reactivity is the number one indicator of an anxious society. Number two is hurting. Okay, we might call this politicization, uh, where you mm -hmm. do what other people who are like you are doing. There's not really a conscious decision to be that way. It's not a principled approach to life, but it is a self-preservation approach to life. The third one is blaming, not taking responsibility for what we might be doing wrong or how we can be part of the solution, but constantly blaming other people. He has a great illustration of blaming, which just stuck with me. He said, it's like you get a group of people, like a leadership team or your family or just a group of people in a room, and the room is filled with gas fumes, and somebody strikes a spark, and the whole room explodes, and everybody blames the person that struck the spark. And that's the blaming, man. In other words, there's no discussion about, man, and maybe we should have cleared the fumes out of the room. You know, that was the fundamental uh, source of the problem. But in a blaming society, you look for who ignited the spark. And that's who gets the blame for this, which kind of leads us to, as you can see, these naturally flow into each other. Hyperreactivity means let's all herd together and get safety in numbers. Let's have our identity in this group. And anybody that breaks the mold, well, we need to blame them, not the system. We blame them. And then the fourth is a reliance on the quick fix. And that makes sense, too. We don't want to look at the underlying causes and, and address them. We'll go for the quick fix. And you see this all over our society is we're trying to, what I call, you're looking at the tail end of the dog and not the start of the dog. You know, the, all our problems, instead of looking at the source of the problem, we just want to slap a Band-Aid on it. Let's just put a quick fix on it. And then finally, there's just a, a step of the lack of leadership. And if you think about it, what would be the cost be for one someone to step forward and say, I'm an individual and I'm going to break from the herd and I'm going to look at the sources and I'm going to kind of point the finger at all of us and at the sources, not the I'm not going to blame. I'm going to take ownership of what's going on here. So it also chronic anxiety leads to a lack of leadership and more going along with the herd. So those are the five aspects of what he would consider a chronically anxious system or a chronically anxious society. Yeah. And when you get to thinking about those, you realize there's something running underneath this. And this is exactly where Friedman is going. Leadership is an emotional process not a data-driven process or a vision process or a cerebral process. What creates this kind of anxious society is the emotional life of individuals and a group out of whack. So th this, I think, is his major contribution is if you want to uh, get to the root of why society is the way it is, if you want to get to the root of why you are the way you are, you need to look at the level of emotions. And Great leaders are uh, sometimes instinctually good, but often uh, very uh, interested in the emotional life of the group. Now, this, this also leads to another important point, because 
when we talk about the emotional life of the group, we tend to think through this kind of therapeutic lens that we've been talking about in a lot right. of these books, which would be, okay, what we need then is more emotional sensitivity. We need sensitivity training for everyone. We need to be a little bit less hardcore and a little bit more considerate. What will surprise you about this book is nothing could be further from what Friedman is talking about than that approach. He sees that as a symptom of the chronic anxiety. The desire to one of the one of the uh, things he talks a lot about, and this is boy, you're going to resonate with this. Everyone is that in a chronically anxious society, this regressive emotional state, a very immature emotional state, you whoever is the weakest or most dependent member of the group sets the agenda. In other words, if someone's upset or someone's not functioning well, everybody focuses on that person. The whole performance of the group comes down to the level of the most dependent, least functional person. That's right in line with what you were saying, Cole, is the idea of, well, we all need to be more sensitive and we all need to acknowledge, you know, the uh, the hurt feelings or the uh, triggered reactions of people in the group. He's going to say that's actually an immature emotional response, and that's feeding the anxiety. We're all anxious about whoever in the group is upset. In fact, he's going to go the other direction, and he talks about a key idea about a differentiated leader, someone who can separate from that anxious process going on in the leadership group. He, it's exactly what you said. He's going to go the opposite direction and talk about a well differentiated person. So when he says leadership is an emotional process, he doesn't mean coddling people. He means taking ownership of your own emotions and not getting sucked into the anxiety of the group. I'll just tell you how he defines a well-differentiated leader and let you comment on that. He says a well-differentiated leader is someone who has clarity about his or her own life goals. And therefore, you are far less likely to become lost in the anxious emotional processes that are swirling around you. So a well-differentiated leader is someone who's emotionally healthier and actually knows who they are and what they're about. There's a big similarity between some of the things he's saying about this well-differentiated leader versus the weakness, the emotional weakness that we see in our culture and what people, uh, certain psychologists, Jonathan Haidt, who, who uh, mm -hmm. with Greg Lukianov wrote the book, The Coddling of the American Mind. Um, there's a book called The Rise of Victimhood Culture, I believe, that deals with this same phenomenon. And, and basically what these guys are saying is from a clinical standpoint, what you're seeing happen in some things like safe spaces and trigger warnings, which, which are kind of the whipping boys of... Uh, the snowflake kind of movement, what you're seeing in those is that you're actually treating mental illness or emotional unhealth in a way that actually would produce that same emotional unhealth. So the way you deal right. with um, chronic fears is by helping the person come to grips with their fears, whether by seeing that they're not real fears, 
uh, by exposing them gradually to them to show that they can conquer their fears. Those are the ways that you would help somebody that has these kinds of reactions. What you would not do is play up to them that their fears are actually bigger and badder than they think they are and that they should avoid them at all costs. That's a great way to make people even more unhealthy. Well, you don't just have to have uh, safe spaces and trigger warnings to be reinforcing that. In, in, basically telling people that you don't have to tolerate any kind of emotional discomfort in your life is inculcating those same kinds of emotional unhealth. So the inability right. to disagree, the inability to stand up for what you believe in and take the flack, um, the whole canceling thing is is basically a mob mentality of we will make things so mm-hmm. difficult for you and your emotional health threshold will get so bombarded that you will back down from who you are and bow to our ideology. All of this from a public standpoint is basically proving Friedman's point that uh, the the problem we have as a society is we don't have enough people who are well differentiated and can basically know who they are, what they stand for, offer their opinion without bowing to the people who are saying, well, you know how that makes me feel is this way. And uh, as we'll talk about later in this episode, this is really a difficult uh, line to walk. And I think Friedman does it pretty well, because Mm -hmm. on the one hand, we're seeing this with with free speech. Um, I I think the way that we're starting to define hate speech, for example, is a no win cul-de-sac for a society. You you can't basically place the onus of um, right and wrong on the person who is perceiving the action 100 percent. So I say something, right. you know, you you hear these stories about college professors who were saying a di- they were speaking in a different language, but they said something that sounded like a racial slur in our language. And because there was a person who heard that in the classroom and was offended by it, now the person who said it must be punished for doing that. So you stripped out intent. You've stripped out agency. All you're evaluating something by is how this person perceived it. Well, you, you can't control the way that that person perceives it. So you actually can't locate the morality of that action in the way that it's perceived. What, what Friedman is going to say is that's essentially what it takes to be a well-differentiated leader is to take responsibility for your own emotional well-being and not be sucked into accepting responsibility for the emotional well-being of others. We'll come back to talk about how that can be abused later. There mm-hmm. are definitely ways that you can go too far with that. But but that gives us the picture of what he's talking about. Exactly. You you nailed that. And you might be thinking though, let's go once he goes another step here because if you just stop there, you could get the impression that he's saying check out of the herd be comfortable in your take responsibility for your own emotions, have clarity about your own life goals. And uh, it's not the same as setting boundaries, but it's basically saying I'm not going to play the anxious game and I'm not going to hand you control over me. That could be taken to, well, it sounds like this individual just doesn't care about anyone else. Well, let's Let's add what he adds to this. He says that the well-differentiated person has to start by uh, being having clarity about their own life goals, taking responsibility for their own emotional processes, but they are a non-anxious presence, meaning they check out of the anxiety of the system and say, I'm not going to participate in the anxiety of the system, but they stay connected to the people. 
And in that way, they're able to be a strength for other people rather than just forget you guys, I'm going my own way. So a non-anxious presence of being well differentiated and yet staying connected with the people in the system. Yeah, let me add one thing there as you as you're defining this, the non-anxious part of this. So sometimes we think of the term anxious like I'm worried about something. Right. Friedman means this in a slightly different way. And to understand what he means by a non-anxious presence, you have to understand what he means by anxiety. Anxiety, especially the kind of anxiety we pass back and forth to each other, which is what he's talking about here, is uh, rooted in somebody basically saying, you are now responsible for my emotional well-being. Right. Once that leap has been made, that's been offered on the one hand and, and implicitly accepted on the other that's when you start to get a chain reaction of anxiety. So again, it's it's less the way we talk about it with worrying or fear right. or something like that, although that can contribute to it, more along the lines of in a system of people, in a group, we live in a culture where uh, we demand that other people take responsibility for our feelings, for our emotional life. Once you accept that bargain, you have now become part of the chain of anxiety. So the well-differentiated leader is, is not indifferent to the feelings of others. The well-differentiated leader understands that they actually cannot own the feelings of others. Right. That's so a good way of saying that. There's the non-anxious part, as in I'm, I'm disconnected enough that I actually cannot own your emotional life. But then there's the presence part of it. I am present. I am emotionally connected. I am relating. I am in the same emotional group as you are. And uh, that is what Friedman says is the key to leadership, staying uh, out of the game of passing anxiety back and forth and staying relationally and emotionally connected to people. The power of your presence is the most important thing about your leadership. And I think that's an amazing contribution that Friedman's book makes is stop thinking as much about your vision and your strategy and your intelligence and all these other things and spend a little time thinking about what your presence does for other people when you're around them. What is it? What is it? What does that do in the rooms that you walk into? That's an aspect of leadership. I think Friedman puts on the table that I had not spent a lot of time thinking about. I think that's the biggest takeaway. Once you understand these foundational ideas the biggest takeaway is that as long as you are part of the anxiety of the system, how's everybody feeling, is is the de most dependent member being taken care of, you can't change that system and you can't stop the chronic anxiety. Only by being a well-differentiated leader who stays connected with the system but is not subject to uh, being manipulated in that way that you can actually be a modifying presence that you can show the way to a healthier way of being by refusing to take on responsibility for other people's uh, emotions. And I think that's his fundamental point to me. And this is what he means when he said leadership is an emotional process. He doesn't mean that there aren't systems and there aren't mechanisms. What he's saying is most fundamentally, if you want to lead a team, you cannot be caught up in the emotional undertow of what's going on in that team. You have to be secure enough in your own self to interact in a way that shows health, not disease. 
Well, partially because the the differentiated leader is somebody who has what he calls a solid self. We talked about this a little bit in Charles Taylor's book, A Secular Age. Th- this would be the yeah. positive side of the buffered self. Um, we mostly we're talking about the negative side because in a religious sense, a, a, a porous self aligns more closely with what we see in the Bible. But this would be the good side of the buffered self in the sense that from the perspective of other people, you are no longer predetermined by whatever reaction you might face to bow to pressure or to recreate your ideas. Instead, you're actually free as a leader to advocate for what you think is best, and so is everybody else. And when that happens, when everybody is bringing their full self, they're free to speak what they think they should speak without the undertow of anxiety, oh, I have to own how this might affect everybody else, that's mm-hmm. when you start to get real uh, dynamism as a team. This might be a good, I'm t- he has a bullet list on page 195 of the book. And he, and he, and this to me was very helpful because I know what we're saying here is, is new to a lot of people and it's hard to get your head around it. What does a differentiated person, meaning separate yourself from the herd? What does it look like to be differentiated? He has a bullet list and I'm going to read several of these because it starts, you, you, I think you'll go, oh, aha. Yes. I understand that what he's saying. He says differentiation is, is a direction in life, a little more than a state of being. So, for example, differentiation is containing your reactivity to the reactivity of others. And that means that you will avoid being polarized. You know, it's like the poem by Kipling of if, if you can keep your head when all others about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. In other words, it's that ability to not get caught up in the reactivity. And so you don't have to be polarized. Uh, he says differentiation he is maintaining a non-anxious presence when the others around you are anxious. He says differentiation is being able to cease automatically being one of the system's emotional dominoes. When the most dependent person throws out a a problem or a reaction to something and the dominoes start falling, you aren't one of the dominoes. Differentiation is being clear about your own personal values and goals. And differentiation, finally, is taking maximum responsibility for your own emotional being rather than blaming others or the context for how you are reacting. And so he says differentiation is really an emotional concept more than a cerebral one, but it does require clear headedness and a little Mm -hmm. clarity about who you are. And that list helped me understand what he was saying, put a bit of meat on the bones of what is a well differentiated leader. And I think we've all been in situations where these bullet points make sense to us. We've probably all been part of an anxious system and realize, yes, this this is different than what normally happens. Let me tell you what strikes me reading through this list uh, when it comes to leadership specifically, and Mm -hmm. especially leadership in our world. So much of what Friedman is talking about is actually what you would want in a really good parent. Um, Right. And and that's not to say that the difference between a leader and others is the same as a parent and a child. In fact, if you act that way, you're not going to be a great leader. But what you see in parenting translates really well to what Friedman is talking about. Nobody thinks that the parent is a bully for, uh, you know, 
allowing their child to have a reaction that doesn't threaten them because they know it's for the best. Um, You know, a parent has longer term perspective in mind. Their their existence is not identified by their child's immediate thought about them, but the long term trajectory of their life. And what we're seeing in our society a lot of times is childish behavior and a lack of what you would want in a really good parent. And I, I might summarize Friedman's list this way. These are not his words, but I, I think this this gets at what he's talking about. The ability to handle a tantrum without an identity crisis is differentiated leadership. So much of what's going on in our world right now is people who have figured out if you just throw a big enough tantrum, people will cave to get you to stop so that you can get what you want. A well-differentiated leader is not threatened by somebody else's tantrum. and whether it's sit-ins on college campuses or activist groups of every different stripe, there's a lot of tantrums being thrown. And what ends up happening is it's not just the damage of the tantrum. It's basically a way of forcing you to have a miniature identity crisis. Well, look what you've done to me. Look what a monster you are. Look how terrible you are. So you're going to change your ways. Back to the parenting thing. A child throwing a tantrum one of the big things that's effective about a child throwing a tantrum is it makes you look like a bad parent to all the other parents. But right. the thing is, all the other parents understand, if they've had kids, that that doesn't reflect on you. It reflects on the kid. And right. uh, when you become an adult, the same thing is true. In an organization, when people don't like something that you've done and they throw a tantrum over it, it's not always a, it's not always a reflection on your leadership. It's not always a moment that indicates you need to have an identity crisis. It might be what Friedman is talking about here, the moment where if you will stand your ground because you have a solid self, real change has the possibility of happening. That is a brilliant analogy, and it really encapsulates this because everybody who's had children for very long knows how you deal with the tantrum. But there are two ways that most people deal with tantrums. One is soothing the child which is, of course, entering into the anxious system and giving the very response, the self-reinforcing response. I have a tantrum, you soothe. You know, you, oh, poor child, uh, won't you get up? Come hug me, et cetera. The other response is just as self-reinforcing, and that's anger. Parents get angry at kids. Well, I'm going to discipline you, or you're going to lose your TV privileges, or God forbid now, I'm going to swat you and spank you if you don't stop doing it. That's also playing into the anxious system and reinforcing it because you've entered into the anxiety of the system. And everybody knows that the right way to handle a tantrum is to not let it disturb you and just let the child have a tantrum. Now, it's hard because everybody else around you, uh, other than the ones who know this, who, who would admire you for this, would say, you better do something with that child. No, actually, you should do absolutely nothing with that child. Just let them have their tantrum. And pretty quickly, they'll realize, well, that behavior is not getting me what I want. And so being that non-anxious presence as a parent is the way to actually help your child grow. That's a that's a brilliant example of what he's I think what he's talking about. But here's my question for you, then, is why is it so hard for us today in business, in a family and whatever to be this well-differentiated leader? What are some of the barriers, he points out, to being able to do this? Yeah, this this is where the book starts to get really interesting, is when you start to parse out why people don't do this. And to 
bring one back to what we've just been talking about, there's a, a kind of clever, kind of insidious barrier that's being thrown around a lot right now with the whole love your neighbor uh, platitude. Of course, this is not when love is defined biblically. This is if you don't do what I think is best for me, you're not loving your neighbor. That is so emblematic of the kind of emotional system that he's talking about. Uh, the claim that you might not be a good person. You might not be loving your neighbor. You might not be being, being very Christian because of the stance you're taking or the opinion you're giving or the way that you're leading, because I'm now saying that that's not loving your neighbor. That kind of attack is a big barrier. And a lot of people will bow to that. Well, I, I, at all costs, I want to do that because that's, you know, I've got to get both of these great commandments. And if this is really violating that, I've got to reconsider. Well, that may or may not have anything to do with, with whether or not you're loving your neighbor, uh, but it right. certainly carries strong rhetorical power. And we would put that in the category of sabotage. Every time you differentiate as a leader, uh, you are going to be sabotaged by people who are who are undifferentiated. And this is where Friedman is building a lot off of family systems families are also small emotional units. That's why the parenting and mm -hmm. child thing, it really is related, even though it's a difference in the magnitude of the parent and the child. But it's really related because a family is an emotional unit. And uh, in a family, you basically have all these little systems working in a microcosm. And so if somebody in the family is going to differentiate, especially a child, if they're going to differentiate, chances are they're going to have people try to pull them back into the mean. And if you do this as a leader, you're going to be challenged. If you if you differentiate, if you have a strong sense of self, if you um, decide here's what you believe in and you're putting it out there and you're going to lead in that direction, you will have people sabotage you. And, and that is, and they will make your life very painful if they can. And, th and that's a big barrier to leading in a differentiated way. It's it's a way of basically people uh, keeping you from being in a healthy mental state because it makes them feel better. That's a big barrier. Another another barrier, I would say, is technology. Mm -hmm. And uh, technology is a barrier because distraction is a major barrier of differentiation. It, it's impossible to be differentiated if you don't know who you are and where you're going. And what distraction right. does, and technology is so good about this, is it keeps us from ever spending any time thinking about who we actually are and where we want to go. We have very thin identities and very thin plans because we're constantly distracted. Secondly, uh, we're scared of being alone with our own thoughts. You know, boredom, in a sense, is being with yourself and being uncomfortable. We right. are very, we're very uncomfortable with boredom. And so even little things that 10 or 15 years ago, you wouldn't have thought twice about waiting in a waiting room without your phone, standing in a line, you know, at the post office without your phone is now a fate worse than death. What am I going to do for those four minutes? Just be alone right. with myself. You know, that's <laughs> a terrifying thing. But when you go to bed at night, you know, do you look at your phone all the way up until the moment you fall asleep so you don't have to lay there and just think about your day and process and have that internal dialogue going on. Those are the moments where you build the self right. and the identity that you need to be differentiated. So technology and sabotage are two of the things I think that keep us from uh, leading this way.
Yeah, I agree with that. I think those those both are forces that push us, you know, away from differentiating. They try to pull us back into the herd. But, you know, here's the tricky part of this that you alluded to earlier uh, is that you're probably going to be called because it's easy to throw these labels around in our society nowadays, uh, a, a narcissist by those that are in the herd. And on the one hand, that will be just expected. You're, you're all about yourself. No, I'm just not going to take ownership of you. But narcissists, there will occasionally be narcissists who will exploit this. And that is one of the downsides of this. So I would expect that word to start flying around about uh, well-differentiated leaders. And every now and then, a narcissist is probably going to slip in and, and take advantage of this. Yeah, I, I think the reason for this, because this is really true, is this this system is probably skewed to where somebody who is really well differentiated, uh, maybe not emotionally healthy, but well differentiated can take advantage of this and use it for their own purposes. I think we probably already overdiagnosed narcissism. We call everybody a narcissist now. Um, but there are narcissists out there. And part of the problem with calling everybody a narcissist is the real narcissists get off because, uh, you, right. you know, it's it's one of those. You the devalue boy, the label. boy who cried wolf, um, mm -hmm. the boy who cried narcissist. And what I think is interesting about Friedman is in some ways his whole thing is a correction. So he says you've got this interdependent, undifferentiated system. So the solution is to be a differentiated leader, which would be somebody who is. Um, they are non-anxious, but they are present. Well, it's almost like the beats in uh, a musical staff where the strong downbeat is on the corrective. You need to be more differentiated. And the faint beat between the downbeat is, but you need to be present and emotionally connected with people. That actually gets lost because that is not the corrective. The corrective is differentiate. And that's where all the energy goes in this book and when people talk about this. And the problem is if you just do that, you really will lead in a narcissistic way because just detaching right. from people is not healthy leadership. Just having a, a sense of self, having kind of a solipsistic view of the world, that is not a healthy way to lead. And, and, and you can right. look at people who otherwise would be good examples of this. Steve Jobs, for example, if you've read Isaacson's book about him or watched the movies, he is a total narcissist egomaniac. And at the same time, he has a very strong sense of self and he does not take ownership over other people's emotional state. Okay. That doesn't make him a great leader by Friedman's definition. He's missing half of what it takes to be a good leader. He is completely emotionally detached from the people around him. So this is where Friedman's whole paradigm is, is really powerful. Yes, you need to differentiate, and probably that's the number one thing that most people need to do, but it's not the only thing that people need to do. To get out of an unhealthy, anxious environment, you need to differentiate. But to be a healthy leader, you also need to stay emotionally connected with people. Connected, but not owning is the key. So it's really a matter of what's the defense against narcissism because I think this is a legitimate critique of this book and and you know and and of our conversation so far for people that are listening. Well, mm -hmm. that's only half the issue. Differentiation is only half the issue. A well-differentiated person is somebody who can be non-anxious but who can also stay present. That is very difficult to do and that's why most people don't lead this way. Well, as I thought about 
applying this into the Christian world. I've seen it done poorly by Christians, appropriating it as purely a psychotherapeutic mechanism. I've seen others try to bring it into the church and sort of throw a little holy water on it. But I will say this, it does make sense that some of these ideas tap into some of the biblical truths. And to me, one of the ways that Christians have a head start on being a well-differentiated leader is that we uh, are not called to having a herd identity. In other words, the, the strength of Christians coming to this idea is that we don't bring a I'm caught up in the emotional system of people pleasing and that sort of thing. And my identity is in what everybody else thinks about me. We start with an identity in Christ that already begins to differentiate us. So talk a little bit about how we as Christians might appropriate these ideas in a very healthy way. Friedman was a Jewish rabbi, and so you're going to see some resonance between the values that he brings and the values that a Christian would bring to leadership. One of those being it is it is only possible, I would say. It's certainly easiest, but I'm not sure you could do this otherwise. It is easiest to be well differentiated when you have a received identity, and that's where Christians find themselves. We don't actually have to construct an identity. As Christians, we are given an identity in Christ. We have been forgiven. We have been given grace. We have a mission. We have a hope that we're living for. We are children of God. We have a family of people surrounding us. We have been given this robust identity. We are loved by God, and that empowers all of who we are. The problem is, most Christians don't live with the identity that they've received. And you see this in Bible studies all the time. Ephesians is great like this. You know, the first three chapters of Ephesians are a description of who we are in Christ. And then the last three chapters are what we should do because of that. And and you've probably heard people teach Ephesians before, which you're teaching right now. Be who you really are. Right. That in in Christian language, that is differentiation. That is a well-differentiated person is somebody who says, this is who God says I am. No human being can change that. Or this is what God has done. No set of circumstances are going to shake that. That's differentiation. That's healthy Christian differentiation. And so being a, a well-differentiated leader in Friedman's sense and, and maybe putting it in the language that we would identify with the, with the in the Bible is be who God says you are, no matter who what anybody else says. And don't let anyone or anything uh, come between you and and who God says you are. That is um that is a powerful Christian analog to what Friedman is saying. And that kind of received identity makes it possible to be differentiated. In fact, I think it would be almost impossible to be truly differentiated and not be a narcissist if you don't have a received identity. If you're going to construct right. an identity and put all of your chips on that that's not just a difficult thing to do. That's a very unhealthy thing to do. Right. I, I agree. We have a received identity. And let me say one word for people out there, because you probably caught this in, in his definition of a well-differentiated leader, someone who has clarity about her or his life goals. And I want to stop there for just a second, because 
from a psychological point of view, I don't really care what those goals are. You just need clarity in that goal. Well, I do think there are a lot of people walking around going, gosh, I don't know. What is my purpose in life? What is the big grand plan? Don't don't get hung up on that, because as a Christian with a received identity, your clarity is simply this. You may do a lot of things in life, but it's here's your clarity. You are a child of God and you are about God's business in the world. Well, what exactly does he want? me to do. Act like Christ in whatever situation you're in. I mean, it doesn't have to be more complicated than that to simply have that clarity. And so I think Christians have a lot uh, a lot easier time and come to this as well differentiated because Christ himself and his identity, he is the ultimate differentiated person. He's not part mm-hmm. of the herd and he still loves people. And that's what right. you were saying. That's that's the essence. And and that is our received identity from Jesus Christ. Yeah, let me give you my final takeaway from this. And and then I want to hear yours. I, I think what you're saying is, is the big takeaway for Christian leaders is we should be so secure in our identity. We should be so satisfied and provided for by God, so connected with the people around us that we lead in a very similar way to what Friedman is saying. Not because we're megalomaniacs, but because we have conviction, we have identity, we've been provided for, and so we are going to do what God has called us to do, no matter what anybody says, and we can't own the opposition to that. But part of the way that we lead is by self-sacrifice and serving others and considering others interests more significant than our own. We're actually free to do that as differentiated Christian people. And so uh, Christian leaders should be the foremost people who are able to say, I know who I am. I have a solid sense of self because that's what God has given me. And now I can utilize that to stay connected with people, to understand the emotional dynamic of a team and the people that I'm serving, the people that I'm leading. And so you can get this non-anxious, but present in a Christian leader. I'd jump on that as my final comment, too. The statement that Jesus made about his death, this is very instructive. He he made a point of saying, no one takes my life from me. I lay down my life willingly. And let me, let me make a parallel here. A lot of times we're self-sacrificing Christians because we think we're supposed to be, and our little system of people around us This is what is expected of us. If that's why we're doing what we're doing, we are part of a chronically anxious system. Other people are controlling our behavior so that we'll be accepted in the Christian crowd. And that goes completely against what Jesus said. True self-sacrifice is when you don't have to do that just because people are clamoring for it, but you do it because that's what your Lord did for you. I decide to self-sacrifice. I'm not pressured into being into self-sacrifice. And I think that's the big distinction and why I think a lot of Christians are caught up in the Christian chronic anxiety. And I think being self-differentiated, that's what Jesus was saying. He says, I lay my life down willingly because I love you, not because I'm being pressured into doing this. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening. 
and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.